Hey, it's Brian, back after a little hiatus and returning just in time to welcome you into the Burr Months. I know for a lot of you, just like me, the holiday season spans that entire four-month period between September and December, all the months ending in Burr, or the Burr Months. There will always be those among us who wait until Thanksgiving or even later to find their holiday spirit and to each their own. But for those of us who couldn't give a Christmas creep about mainstream notions of the length of the holiday season, I've got you covered. Let me start off things with a glimpse ahead. As many of you know, by the time Thanksgiving rolls around, the Christmas past family and the Brian Earl household will have a tiny new member. And I've been working hard to get the season ready for you now during these last days of summer. It's another season of what you've come to expect from Christmas past, with the fascinating stories behind your favorite Christmas traditions and your Christmas memories. And this season, probably more than any previous season, I'm really looking forward to sharing your Christmas memories on the show. It's never too early to send one. Just record a voice memo on your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean, and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. Also, as I've mentioned elsewhere, I may republish some of my old episodes during the Burr months. I'm very proud of how the Christmas Past family has grown since the show debuted in 2016. And today, with more than 100 episodes and lots of people newly discovering the show this year, that means that a lot of those older episodes are buried at the bottom of a long list, or even, on some podcast apps, not showing up at all. So I figured I'd add a few quote-unquote encore presentations of older material for all of the newer listeners. But for the moment, let's start fresh. You don't need me to tell you that in the midst of a pandemic, Christmas of 2020 is going to look a little different in many ways, large and small. It will truly be a Christmas against the odds. And that got me wondering about finding a fitting classic Christmas story to share with you here. So I've selected Stella Francis's 1918 Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. It's a short novel for young readers, and what I'm planning to do is bring you maybe one or two or even three chapters per episode until the story is complete. So I'll come back at the end to wrap up and say goodbye, but for now, let me wish you a wonderful and festive start to the Burr months, and let me invite you to get nice and cozy as I present the first installment of Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. Chapter 1. The Grand Council Fire Woe he low for I, woe he low for I, Woe he low, woe he low, woe he low for I. Woe he low for work, woe he low for health. Woe he low, woe he low, woe he low for love. 239 girl voices chanted the woe he low cheer with weird impressiveness. The scene alone would have been impressive enough, but campfire girls are not satisfied with that kind of enough. Once their imagination is stimulated with the almost limitless possibilities of the craft, they are not easily pleased with anything but a finished product. The occasion was the last Grand Council Fire of Hiawatha Institute for Campfire Girls located in the Allegheny city of Westmoreland. 
the classroom work had been rushed a day ahead, examinations were made almost perfunctory, and for them also the clock had been turned 24 hours forward. The curriculum was finished and the day just closed had been devoted to preparations for a grand council wind-up for the 15 fires of the institute which would break ranks on the following day and scatter in all directions for home and the Christmas holidays. And there was literal truth in this break-ranks method of dismissing school at the Institute. Since the United States entered the European war on the side of the anti-frightfulness allies, Hiawatha had become something of a military school. The girls actually drilled with guns and they would shoot those guns with all the grim fatality of so many boys. Not that they expected to go to war and descend into the trenches and the fire hailstorms of steel-coated death messengers at the enemy. Oh no, they might, but they were sensible enough not to let their imagination carry them so far. But preparedness was in the air, and the girls voted to a… a… a girl. I almost said man, for they were as brave as men in many respects. To take up military drill and tactics two hours a week as part of the curriculum. Madame Cleaver, head of the institute, did not start the military movement rashly. She was carefully diplomatic in the conduct of her school, for she must satisfy the critical tastes and ideas of a high-class parentage clientele. But she also kept her fingers on the pulse of affairs and she knew pretty well how to strike a popular vein. Hence the membership of her classes was always on the increase. Indeed, at the beginning of the school year, she had to turn away something like 40 applicants for want of room and accommodations. Hiawatha Institute was founded as a campfire girls' school, and when Uncle Sam became involved in the European War, the national need for nurses appealed strongly to campfire girls everywhere. What could they do? The very nature of the training of the girls from the wood-gatherer to torch-bearer made the question, so far as they were concerned, a self-answering one. They had all the broad common-sense rudiments of nursing. With some advanced science on top of this, they would be experts. But military authorities said that the nurses ought to have some military drill. War nurses must be organized, and there was no better method of effecting this orderly requisite than by military training. One well-known captain of infantry informed Madame Cleaver that war nurses could not teach the highest grade of efficiency unless they were able to march in columns from one camp to another and be distributed in squads at the points needed. With all this information at her tongue's end, the madam put the matter to her uniformed girls in the assembly hall. Rumor of what was coming had reached them in advance, so that it did not fall as a surprise. The vote was unanimous in favor of the plan. The needed nursing expert was already a member of the faculty. The classes were formed a few days later. These were the girls that gathered round a big outdoor campfire, it was really a bonfire, in the snow of midwinter on the evening of the opening of this story. Most of them were rich men's daughters, but there were no snobs among them. They were girls of vigor and vim, intelligence and imagination, practical and industrious. They were lively and fond of a good time, but most of them, at least, would not slight a duty for pleasure. Behind every enjoyment was the pathway of tasks well done. Madame Cleaver was chief guardian of the 15 campfires of the Institute. The faculty was not large enough to supply all the adult guardians required, but that fact did not prove by any means an insurmountable difficulty. More than enough young women in Westmoreland, 
well-qualified to fill positions of this kind volunteered to donate their services in order to make the campfire organization of the school complete. Indeed, these volunteer guardians added materially to their influence and rank in the community by becoming connected with the Institute. There was, in fact, a waiting list of volunteers constantly among the social leaders of the place. The chief guardian was mistress of ceremonies at the Grand Council Fire. 239 girls in uniform, brown coats, campfire hats, and brown duck hiking boots stood around the fire, answering Kola in unison by groups as the roll of the fires was called. As each fire was called and the answer returned, the guardian stepped forward and gave a little recitation of current achievements. This program was varied here and there with music by a girl's chorus and a girl's orchestra. Everything went along with the smoothness, although with some of the deep dips and lofty lifts of grand opera, until the name of the last campfire, Flamingo, was called. Miss Harriet Ladd, the guardian, stepped forward and said, Madam Chief Guardian, Associate Guardians, and the Campfire Girls of Hiawatha Institute, I bring to you a message of things planned by Flamingo Campfire Girls, 13 in number. As you know, there is in an adjoining state a strike of coal miners that has caused much suffering among the poor families of the strikers. High Peak lives in a mountain mining district. Her father is a mine owner and has given his consent to the extending of an invitation to Flamingo Campfire to work among these poor families and give them relief during the Christmas holidays. The arrangements have been completed and the girls will start for Holly Hill tomorrow. Hooray, hooray, hooray! Hooray for High Peak! Hooray for Marion Stanlock! Hooray for Flamingo Campfire! The cheers, shrill on the sharp winter air, now in unison, now in confusion, came not from the assembled campfire girls, although from nearly as many voices. Out from the timber thicket to the west of the campus rushed a small army of khaki-clad figures. There were a few screams among the girls, but not many. To be sure, everybody was thrilled, but nobody fainted. There were a few moments of suspense, followed by bursts of laughter and applause from the girls. It's the Spring Lake Boy Scouts, cried Marion Stanlock, who was the first to announce an explanation of the surprise. Clifford, Clifford Long, are you responsible for this? The Boy Scout patrol leader thus addressed did not reply, though he recognized the challenge with a wave of his hand. He was busy bringing his patrol in matching line with the other patrols. As if realizing their purpose, the circle around the campfire was broken at a point nearest to the newly arriving invaders, and an avenue of approach was formed by the lining up of some of the girls in two rows extended out toward the Boy Scouts. In double file, a hundred and fifty boys marched in and around the campfire, then faced toward the outer ring of campfire girls and bowed acknowledgement of the courteous reception. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you'll join me again for the next installment. Until then, let me remind you, as always, that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. Hey, I'm doing my part to grow the Christmas Past family. How about you? Telling a friend about this show or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts are quick and easy ways to show your support. They don't cost a thing, and they really do make a big difference. 
And if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card to say thanks. Reach out for details on that. You can drop me a line anytime at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And join the private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet. Visit christmaspast.media for additional Christmas fun like articles, quizzes, infographics, and more. Until we meet again, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright.